Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Well, good morning. So glad you're here and welcome to our first Holy Communion Sunday. We are really excited. Let's give these kids an early round of applause. You know, our kids, they represent a massive investment for parents and society as a whole. And you might say, well, we do that because they're so cute. Um, and they are. They're certainly cute. I also have uh, three of these cute things myself, uh, all, all boys. The oldest is now 19, and so yes, they're cute, but there's got to be another reason uh, why we will spend such a great deal of our time and our money and our energy raising these little bundles of joy. So why do we do it? Why do we have them? Why do we raise them and discipline them and encourage them? And, and why do we sacrifice endless resources? Why do we invite the heartache and disappointment? I think the reason is hope. I think that most of us, even if it is at a subconscious level, I think we have families and we raise up the kids and we send them out into the wild because of what we see in their young lives. All of this hope, all of this potential, I think in their tiny little feet, we see brave paths that are yet to, to, to be blazed under them. I think in these, in these hands, we get to see all of the achievements that are yet to come. And in their developing minds, we get to think of all of the problems that, that face us that, that are yet to be solved. And they represent for us the best of hope for us and for our families, for society as a whole, really even for all of humanity. See, we want them to reach their full potential. I think that's a great thing. But what is their full potential? How do we really understand that? Does it mean that they're the smartest student? The, the top athlete? The hottest performer? I mean, what do we mean when we say their full potential? Maybe we mean their full earning potential. I mean, that would always be nice, right? Then they can take us on expensive vacations when we get old and they won't leave us in like, you know, dumpy little nursing homes and stuff like that. Like, this would be good news. We would be really excited about that. Is that really the extent of what we mean when we say they, we want them to reach their full potential? Of course not. We want them to fulfill all that they were meant to in this world. 
And we want them to lead full and meaningful lives. Meaningful lives. And for that to happen, they have to become people who are just. A bit of an unfamiliar word. We, we know what it means, but we don't use it in this context much anymore. But the, what the world needs is young girls and young boys who are going to grow up to become passionate and wise men and women who will create a just society. But of course, creating a just society takes great sacrifice and few will actually do it. So what we want to do is take a look at what living a sacrificial and just life looks like from God's perspective. So if you could open in a Bible to Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. We've got uh, Bibles in the back. Ushers are coming forward to hand some out. Now, let me give you a little bit of the context here. This story takes place, the book of Ruth takes place about 3,000 years ago in the Middle East in ancient Israel. And there are a few key characters that we want to be introduced to. The first is Naomi. Naomi was a Jewish woman, but she was living abroad in Moab with her husband and her two sons and her two daughter-in-laws. Tragedy struck, and her husband and her sons died. Then one of her daughter-in-laws left, so she was left with just the one daughter-in-law, Ruth. Now she was a widow with a widow, and they were facing an uncertain future. That was chapter one of the book of Ruth. Then we come to know Ruth a little bit more because she is Naomi's daughter-in-law and she begins gleaning in the field of Boaz. That's where she meets Boaz and this is in chapter 2 of the book. Largely gleaning means she's collecting the grain to feed herself and Naomi so they don't starve, but we'll talk more about that in a moment. That's chapter 2. Then you meet Boaz. Boaz is the dude with the cool hat and he become, he's asked by Ruth in chapter 3, he is asked by Ruth to become her guardian redeemer, another concept we are mostly unfamiliar with today. Now, this was a huge ask in that day. It would be today as well. And Boaz says to her, yeah, I'd like to, but there's actually somebody else who is first in line as the guardian redeemer, so I need to go talk with him before. And then that all happens leading up to Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 1. All right, let's read it. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. 
So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. Now, there are two of God's laws that I wanted to spend a moment looking at to show us a picture of what it means to live a just life. And one of them is the gleanings that we saw in chapter, that we, that we looked at in past weeks in chapter two. And then the other is the guardian redeemer that we're introduced to here. So let's talk gleanings for a minute, since I'm sure all of you farm on the weekends, right? So farming, apparently, here's how things went down. You would sow all sorts of seed in your field, and it could be whatever, either barley uh, out there, wheat was big, let's say it was corn, because we might be more familiar. And at harvest time, you've got to hustle to get your harvest in. It's an important time of the year. All of your year depends on it. You've got to bring in the harvest. So you'd line up all of your farm hands, and you would get your sickles, and you would go through the field, and you would be cutting down these big stalks. And as you did so, you would bundle them up, and eventually they would be carried off to a place where they'd be separated, the grain from the chaff. Great. Nice and straightforward. The thing is, as you're hustling through the field, it's very likely that you will be leaving some things behind, right? So you'll be dropping little bits of your grain. An ear of corn might fall off, or a head of, you know, the wheat might break off, or you might leave a whole stalk. It might drop out of a bundle and and, and so really what's going on is you're leaving a whole lot behind you. And here's what the law of God said. It said you cannot go through your field a second time. If anything is left behind and if anything grows up later, you can't go back and get it. Now, some of you are more business-minded sorts, and you're thinking, that does not sound smart. In fact, that's, that's kind of idiotic. It would be like going through the field, and every so often you'd be like, oh, look, look what just happened. Oh, look, there's another dollar. Oh, wait, look, there's, a head, there's an ear of corn. And you're kind of going past it, and you're looking through, and you're like, what is going on here? And out it goes, right? And then the law further said that on the edges of your property, which you would pay for, you would take your seed, and you would spread it all along the edges of your property, but on the very edges, you weren't allowed to actually harvest it. You had to leave standing grain where the roads were, where people would travel, now, if you're kind of, you know, you're doing the math, you're like, this is a terrible plan. This does not seem particularly efficient. Why would God mandate? And of course, you look at that, if we're unfamiliar, we go, come on, that's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. Let's be efficient and good business people. And God says, there's something more important than being super productive and effective and efficient. Because we're leaving all of this grain for the foreigner and for the poor, for those who need it in society. They are now allowed to follow your workers and pick up all of the extra gleanings. That means Boaz, who spent money to both put the seed in the ground and then to harvest it, is literally said, has to leave this money behind. How many farmers do you think would have been like, you know, oh, let's just slow the line down a little bit, or maybe we'll just put one guy on kind of going behind them and just pick up a, a couple of these extras, right? I mean, it's just a few who would even notice. I mean, come on. It's you and your guys. You'll get a better bonus if you get more of the grain in, guys. And so how many? Of course they would have. 
We do the same today. And Boaz didn't. Boaz was saying, no, you know what? I'm going to leave it. In fact, I'm going to do above and beyond what the law even called me to do. Why here? Why along the edges? Because this is where the people travel. They're going to be walking along the road, walking along the side of your property, and they are allowed to take your grain because they're hungry and because they're poor and they have need. Lots of folks would have skipped this because it would have been too costly, but Boaz didn't. Now, the guardian-redeemer laws, they're even a bit weirder to us. So you got to put yourself back in the day. Property was exceptionally important. In fact, God had this incredibly just system. The land was permanently given to families. All right, that means that if you, were, if you found yourself destitute and you had to sell your land, you, couldn't, you would never be able to sell it forever. There were, there were laws in place that eventually that, law, that land would be returned to you and your family. Why? Because if you were down and out, a wealthy person could come along and take advantage of you. They could take your land, and then they would forever own your land. You would become a squatter, if that, uh, maybe allowed to work your land, but it would no longer be yours. All the real wealth would go to them, and, it would, and then a, a handful of people would accumulate massive amounts of wealth. And God says, this is not a just system. So the land would always revert back to a family over a certain period of time. It was a very, it was very, a very sophisticated system of, of justice. The thing is, let's say that your family line didn't continue. So let's say that you had a brother or a cousin. Then they had married a woman, but before they had any kids, they died. So you, you left her a widow. Now what? Now that family, now that piece of property, who's going to develop it? Someone next door. One of the relatives will probably pick it up and it'll become part of their estate. But that line, that family line would be forever, would be forever dead. So the guardian redeemer laws were God's way of establishing that you couldn't just keep accumulating wealth to yourself and that these families would not be forgotten. Who's going to take care of the widow? You see, in this day and age, having heirs wasn't simply just part of your legacy and important in that way, it was vital for survival. Who would take care of you? Who would protect you? Who would make certain that when the enemies came, which was often, and tried to, to steal your land, that there wasn't a group there who could fight them off? So you needed to have children. And so the guardian redeemer laws said, listen, if there is a widow and she needs a child, she needs an heir, it is your responsibility as a brother or as a cousin to provide her with a child. So you would have to take her as your wife, and then you'd have to provide her with a child. That means you're protecting her. It means you would be protecting anyone in her family, like her mother or her mother-in-law in this case. It means that you would be defending it and developing the property for them. And all of that seems like a great plan, except there's one catch. The child isn't reckoned as yours, even though it is. That child would be nearly like an adopted child of this family, and that line would continue in your dead relative's name forever, which means there was great risk, which is why when you get to this passage, the other redeemer says, I can't do this. I didn't know there was a whole, whole Ruth thing attached to it. I didn't know I'd be have to take care of Naomi. That's a lot of cash out. I'll be leaving money on the table, and it isn't even going to benefit me long term. 
Lots would have taken a pass like this unnamed guardian redeemer did. But Boaz was willing to sacrifice. He's willing to take the risk and do the right thing. Listen, this is just a small example showing that God's laws are deeply just laws. And I understand why we struggle with some of these things, because I think for many of us, we have this sort of love-hate relationship with laws. We're really glad that they're there, but sometimes we're like, you know, many of them just seem stupid. And of course, many laws are in fact stupid. I came across a couple. One of them says that if you're a police officer in Ohio, that you are allowed to bite a dog if you think that it will calm it down. Who thinks biting a dog is going to calm it down? How did that ever become a thing? And who would bite this dog to calm it down? I don't think that would happen. You know, you also, in Chico, California, you cannot build a nuclear bomb in your garage. Just in case you were wondering, that's an important rule. By the way, uh, besides utter destruction and annihilation of all of your neighbors and family and friends, they hit you with a $500 fine to prevent it. That's, that's a big, big reason not to do it. You also cannot keep a catapult if you are in Colorado, which I don't know where the Second Amendment NRA guys were when that got passed. Uh, that seems like something you should definitely be able to keep. And then there are the pickle laws of Connecticut, which say that every single pickle has to bounce when dropped from a, a, a distance of one foot so that if you know, they don't bounce, they're not allowed to be sold. So who's the pickle dropper guy? Like, is that like a job, the doink, the doink, the doink, you go down the line. Does that mean that every single pickle that you could possibly buy has already been on the floor? Like, how would you even test this whole idea? In Ohio, the operators of coal mines must provide adequate toilet paper. That is a law, which at first you're like, you know what, I don't mind toilet paper laws that require it, but just why did you limit it to coal mines? If you're gonna, if you're gonna go through all the trouble of making the law, why don't you just say, you know what? No, no. Everyone needs to provide adequate toilet paper in my state. Like, why wouldn't you stop at coal? Hey, if you're out, go check the coal mines. They've got an extra roll for you. They're great. See, God's laws aren't like this. We go through God's laws and we find out they are just laws. And, you know, we go through the scriptures and people think that they're outdated or they're incomprehensible. And we think that, you know, they, they don't make any sort of sense for today. But we couldn't be any further from the truth. God's laws are just. Now listen, they might be hard to obey, that's for sure. Absolutely. Maybe, the, maybe they'll cost you a lot more than you'd be willing to, to spend. Maybe they'll help you expand your definition of who is your tribe. That's for sure. It will certainly cost you. It will certainly be challenging. It will certainly be difficult. But they are just. And in this little book of Ruth, we get to see that God loves the poor and he loves the vulnerable and he expects us to treat them with dignity and kindness. But there's a tension in the Bible. We know that if we live the way that God says, that, that society would be incredibly just, it would be amazing, but of course we simply do not do what God says. In one breath, we recognize the goodness of God's laws but in the next, we realize that we struggle to follow them. That's why the Bible tells us that all people fall short of living just lives. Consider Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right 
in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You get the tension, right? He's like, I know God's ways are right. I know they're just. I just can't do them. I continue to disappoint. Jesus went even further and he explained God's just laws, which of course brings us right back to the table of communion. It brings us to the Eucharist. How? Because we have Jesus who obeyed God perfectly. He died on the cross, though he didn't deserve it. Why? Why did he die? But for us, you go through the scriptures and you realize that we are the ones who deserve to suffer because we are an unjust people, not him. We deserve the punishment, but he took it. The writer of Romans also put it like this. The bad news we read, for everyone has sinned and falls short of the glorious standard. But, and here's where the good news comes in, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just when he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. You see, he takes the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf and he says, listen, you no longer have to fear the judgment that you deserve. You can receive forgiveness by trusting in Christ because the innocent and the just died in your place. But it's more than that. See, this is where this whole message becomes distinctly Christian. Because in Romans chapter 8, we, we find out that not only did he die to save us from our sin and from spiritual destruction, but he also gives us the spirit so that now we can actually please God puts it like this, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the spirit. If you have the spirit of God living in you, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. You catch that at the end there, right? These are, this is what God wants for his children. He wants his children to live forgiven lives. He wants his children to live just lives. No wonder we want that for our kids as well. It's hardwired into the very fabric of our souls to long for that. This is the basis of our hope. It's the basis of living the just life. Now, Jesus promises to fill us with the Spirit so that we can increasingly live these kinds of lives. So what do we want for these little packages of hope that we call children? Why do we bring them to the Eucharist? Why do we get them involved in church and raise them according to God's ways? It's because we want them to grow up in a just society. And we want them to go further than that. And we want them to become creators 
of a just society. How do we do that? Listen, it doesn't matter if you're a parent here or a grandparent or a godparent or if you're married or single or if you're an employer or an employee. You see, every single person has a responsibility and plays a vital role in the creation of a just society. We start with a trust in Christ. We have to be freed from the tyranny of our own sinful and broken souls, and then we get to receive the forgiveness and the power. And then we get to see that God's ways are good. This is one of the things we do. We teach the kids every Sunday, our Kids Quest program. We encourage them. We're trying to help them to see this, figure out what it means to trust in Christ fully and completely. And then we get to model for this next generation what it means to study God's word and to pray and to trust in Jesus more fully. Because we need each of them, when they do that, to fight for a just society. You see, there are all of these systemic problems that need brave souls who will fight for the hurting and the oppressed. We need it. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been the tip of the spear in fighting for justice in society. So where is that next generation? They're here already in our midst. They're in our Kids Quest program and they're in our, in our fusion student ministries. And long after we are dead, they will be fighting the good fight. So will we teach them now? Will we show them now? Will they share their crackers and cookies out of their own lunch pail? Will they scoot over so the marginalized person can find a seat at the lunch tables? Will they defend those who are being bullied and left out. And as they decide on career paths, are we going to point them toward just make sure you make a whole lot of money? Or will we help them find careers that will actually let them live significant and meaningful lives that will help create a just society? Will we strengthen their resolve to fight this systemic oppression and racism and bigotry? Are you raising that kind of child are you modeling that kind of life? Because then we need to just simply do justice everywhere. See, God loves every single person, regardless of skin color or nationality or socioeconomic status, even regardless of political party. God loves each and every person. And we get to show the love of God and bring the message of Christ we get to model what it means to care. You know, we have vacation Bible school. There's always an application point for the kids to help people who are hurting around the world. We need that. We have parents that take their kids to soup kitchens and drive around Manhattan helping the homeless. We need to model this kind of sacrifice. And we can do that wherever we are. And no matter what field, no matter what office you find yourself in, no matter what profession, we can find every dehumanizing experience in our field, in our shop, in our, in our business, and we can look and work hard to figure out how to treat each and every person with dignity and fairness and kindness. It's beginning to help us create a just society. You see, Christians, we get to create this kind of just society where people can thrive so that they can more readily find their way back to God creating that society, and the one that will outlast us depends on us raising the next generation according to God's ways. Let's say a word of prayer before we invite the kids to come on in. 
Lord, we're asking that you would help us. You've entrusted to us this incredible privilege. Not just loving these kids, Lord, but of modeling to them. And Lord, to each other, to hold each other accountable, to encourage and to exhort so that we might live just lives. Father, there are so many who are hurting and there are so many who are left out and there are so many who are the receiving the hate of others that you would give us this great privilege in abundance. Help us, Lord, to do this and so much more. We're praying that each person here would come to a place of surrender where they would learn to trust in Christ, where they would give of themselves in ways, Lord, that are sacrificial and beyond what others would think is even good or wise, but instead to sacrifice. We're asking this and so much more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.